This is the last week in our invitation to membership series, where I'm simply inviting you to the membership of this church. Some of you have been attending for a long time, or a while now, and I don't want your relationship to this church to be ambiguous. I would like you to, to know that you belong to the church, that you're a voting member of the church, um, that you can participate in the ministries of this church because you've co- covenanted with the people here. Today, then, is the last sermon in that series where I'm inviting you. Um, And the question I want to ask, I want to start off with is, what do you think our church should be doing? Through your reading of scripture, through your sanctified imagination, what should our church, what should a church be doing when it gathers? Um, Why do we gather? And what precisely... What activities should we involve ourselves in when we gather on the Lord's Day? For that, I would like to turn to a passage that we have turned to before uh, at the beginning of this series. Um, But it's so instructive that I'm going to close the series out with it. That's Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. The Holy Spirit has just come down, the promise of the new covenant. And people are speaking and are preaching the gospel in different languages. And this gives Peter a platform to preach the gospel. As always, miraculous events or good works are always a platform to preach the gospel. We always have to disseminate the message about Jesus Christ. Not just do the works, but the works are always a platform for Jesus Christ. Um, So, in Acts 2.42, we see what this Spirit-led community did and how the Holy Spirit organized them. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what then are we doing here? What are you doing here? Other than a general conviction that going to church is a good thing on the Lord's day, it's good and right to do this. Um, why, why do we, while the world is sleeping, wake up on cold, rainy, snowy mornings, get the kids ready, drag them out of bed, get ourselves ready and, and dress in proper clothing? Um, why, do we, why do we do this and why do we come together? I think there's great confusion um, 
among good, well-meaning Christians on what exactly we're doing on the Lord's Day. Why do we gather? Um, and then what we should be doing when we gather. And, and what's the point of it all? I keep getting... I keep getting an ad on Facebook. Every time I log on to Facebook, I keep getting an ad of this pastor. They must know I'm a pastor because I keep getting an ad of this pastor saying, watch how I grew my church to 500 people in three months and click here. And clearly this guy's selling some kind of techniques and some kind of know-how how to get people in the seats. And in as much as people in the seats represent souls, we want people in the church service, amen? Um, but should that really be our preoccupation, filling seats? Should that really be what we're anxiously trying to do? Using creative techniques to get people in the door? Again, I, I want people to come in the door, but what do we do to get them in, and what do we do once they are in? That's the question. Well, in Acts chapter 2, the passage we just read, we see a newly spirit-empowered community. It's the first Christian church. Um, and while the work of the Holy Spirit was definitely extraordinary, definitely extraordinary, what characterizes this new Christian community was not the novel, Notice, look at that paragraph we just read. It was not the novel that characterized the community. It was not techniques to produce religious experience. It was not even the miraculous that characterized the community themselves. What characterized the Christian community is not the extraordinary, but the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. I see four ordinary means of grace in this passage. Number one, towards the end, they went to the temple together and they were praising God together. Corporate worship was a means of grace. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. That, no doubt, was the preaching of God's word. The preaching of truth handed down by Christ to the apostles. I see the prayers, corporate prayer, being a means, of a means of grace. And finally, I see breaking bread together. That's the Lord's Supper, which foreshadows the kingdom of God. So this passage is not just descriptive of some community that's gone by in ages past, and we can look upon it um, in kind of sentimental terms and say, well, wasn't that nice? I believe that the word of God is here, not just as a description, but as a prescription for how his people should operate when gathered. Yes, I hunger for a great move of God. I hunger for times when the Holy Spirit would come down, slay his people, that the church would grow exponentially, that the church would grow spiritually, in holiness, in evangelism, I long for a move of God. I want a great awakening. But the good news, the good news is we don't have to manufacture that kind of awakening. We don't have to manufacture. God has not called us 
to techniques or our own creativity to make a move of God happen. Rather, what God has done is he's not left us to ourselves. He's actually ordained identifiable means of grace for his people. And we commit them ourselves to these means because we believe that God does extraordinary things through the ordinary means of grace. Again, it's those four ordinary means. Corporate worship, the preaching of the word, prayer, and the ordinances. Specifically today, I'm looking at the Lord's Supper, although baptism is also an ordinance of the church. So I just want to walk through those four with you and talk about the fact that they are the commitments of our church. This is what we do, and this is how we believe God works through. He works through means, and these are the means that God has given us. So first, corporate worship is a means of grace. And I say corporate worship, I mean gathering on the Lord's day for the express purpose of giving God the glory due his name. That is corporate worship. And the whole service is corporate worship. But I am thinking about singing. Singing, praising God. That that is what we are doing, in fact, when when we're singing. We're not just singing nice melodies. We are lifting our voices to the Lord in two ways I want to draw out. Number one, when we sing... We are deliberately praising God and thanking him for who he is and what he's done. If you'll turn with me to 1 Chronicles 16. 1 Chronicles 16. This is when David, the ark was placed in the tent David sings this, gives this song of praise to the Lord in verses 28 through 30. He says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Stop right there. That is a beautiful picture of what corporate worship should sound like. Corporate worship in my mind, is giving something to the Lord as opposed to receiving something from the Lord. So in my mind, in this church, and the types of songs we sing are because we believe that corporate worship is an act of giving primarily and not primarily an act of receiving. We worship because of what he has already done. We love him because he has already loved us. So worship is a joyful, thankful, praising response to the Lord. 
So think of corporate worship not as something to come to and be brought into a state of mind necessarily. Don't think of worship especially as coming and receiving some kind of experience necessarily, but think about corporate worship primarily as giving to the Lord. You are giving him praise and honor and glory. Like David said in that song, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. We are bringing an offering of sacrifice and praise when we sing together. And that's what we're about. The second element of worship is reverence. The attitude of of worship should be a joyful reverence before the Lord. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our Lord is a consuming fire. Too often, I think our love of God is weak and cold because our view of God is too small. We're talking about a being who created existence by speaking. We are talking about a being who could eclipse us with a thought and vaporize all his enemies. I think our view of God has been too anthropomorphized today. It's too weak. It's not strong. It's not powerful. It's not like the mountain that Moses was afraid to touch. God is awful, and he is awesome, and he is glorious. And I think we need to put that view back in our minds when we sing to the Lord. He is not a man. He is an eternal, awful, glorious, majestic God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, bringing those two elements together, giving and reverence, I want to talk about worship as a reverent act of giving glory to God that's due his name. Again, it's not an act of receiving, but an act of ascribing, of giving sacrifice of praises to the Lord. I think we need to put the worship back into worship service. This is not just a service. It's a worship service. So this means that the songs we sing are intentionally Godward songs. The point about the songs we select, um, whether on YouTube or live music, the point about the songs we select is that we want to take the emphasis off, my, off ourselves and put it on the Lord. So there are a lot of good songs out there, but we have precious 20 minutes to sing to the Lord that we set aside on Sundays, right? Three to four songs. And I want those songs to be consciously and intentionally aimed at the Lord, not myself. So there are good songs that talk about how I'm free to run and I'm free to dance and I'm free to live for you. And that's true. But I don't, again, 
want to get my kids ready on Sunday morning, drag myself out of my bed and come here to sing autobiography. I want to sing praises to the Lord, not about myself. And I certainly don't want to sing some kind of redemptively ambiguous lyrics like heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss, as one worship song said. I mean, that's fine to use your creative license to talk about that, but again, I have three songs to give God glory. And I want to intentionally and deliberately give God the praise due his name. Not sing strange lyrics. Um, So how is worship a means of grace? I think it's because, first of all, ecclesia, church, means called out once. You've been called to worship. And it's been by God's good hand and his grace that he calls you out on the Lord's Day, Sunday morning, to give glory to his name. And that's an honor. That's number one. Number two, I believe that reverent worship that gives God glory is... um, it will train our souls in a Godward direction because week after week, month after month, year after year, you are singing about all glory being to Christ, that his rule and reign will never cease. All glory be to Christ. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as is above who is himself our daily bread, praise him, the Lord of love. It is lyrics like that which shape the soul over time through consistency. These will shape your soul, they will shape your family, and they will shape our church. Throughout the week, you can get caught up. We can all get caught up. But Sunday morning is a means of grace because it reorients our hearts and our minds back to the Lord vertically. So, I love that passage in Isaiah. There was great turmoil in Israel. And Isaiah says, in the the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory a vision of god's glory that is what worship should be and by god's grace is so sing to the lord with confidence and with joy and gladness on sunday mornings knowing that even if there's no band even if there's a few squeaking voices it is a sweet sound in the Lord's ear. He receives that. So, again, you are getting up on a cold morning while it's foggy, getting the kids ready because you are part of the ecclesia. You are called out. And it will shape your mind, your soul, the souls of your family, and the souls of this church. Um, secondly, The second means of grace is a preaching of God's word, where we are hearing God talk to us through the preaching of his word. 
Now, throughout the Bible, I could go to many texts here, but throughout the Bible, we see that the preaching and teaching of God's word is always God's primary means for shaping a people. Remember Josiah? Josiah? He found the book of the law in the temple library. And they recommitted, recovenanted themselves to the Lord based on the law. It was the reacting to God's word that changed that community. After God's people had been brought back from Babylon and they were reestablishing Israel, basically, Ezra. If you want to know what this is like, my ministry verse, Ezra 7, 10, 7, 9 and 10. It says, for on the first day of the first month, Ezra began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of the Lord was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes in the rules of Israel. That, that is quite, that is the ministry that God calls ministers to. To study the law of the Lord, to teach it, and to do it among his people. In Acts chapter 6, when the Holy Spirit comes down, what do the apostles say? They say, we should not, we should not spend all our time waiting on tables. It's a good, this is a good work, but we devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, Acts 6. Finally, when Paul talks of Timothy, his young protege, establishing churches, he tells Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So it has always been the word of God that shapes a community. A pastor's role, a minister's role, their primary responsibility, primary responsibility is to know and preach the word and to apply it faithfully to the people. Why not psychology, though? Why not cultural analysis? Why not a study of anthropology and what makes people tick? Why the mundane preaching of the scriptures over the centuries? Why this? Answer, because that is God's chosen means for working through his people, for and in his people. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Not psychology, not cultural analysis, not political commentary. It is the preaching, it is the word of God that's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So even though it might come off as mundane after 2,000 years, we do it because this is what, this is an ordinary means of grace that God has given his people to shape his people. I was reading an article the other day and, uh, from a pastor, and he was asking this very question. He would say, well, wouldn't it be more effective if pastors committed themselves to things like psychology and 
And um, I'm not saying we can't learn anything from that. But how do you affect real change? And here, I want to read you this paragraph, because I think it's, it's worth it. He writes, We prioritize preaching because we trust the word. It is the sword of God's spirit, two-edged and piercing, living and active, reaching beneath the surface and all the way down to the marrow of the soul. We know, we know people aren't hardwired for information by what passes through, in, through their ears and into their minds, but that is entirely beside the point. Old childish, old childless men don't normally father nations. Small young men don't normally slay giants. Crucified men don't normally bring life to the dead. But the fact that biblical preaching shouldn't be expected to produce heart change is, a, is part of why God chose this delivery system for the work that he is doing in our lives. He loves to show his strength in our weakness. Or as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians, it pleases God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is why we preach the word, because God's people are not to be shaped by an excellent orator who has who understands psychology as a scholar of scholars, who knows anthropology and how people tick and can get into their soul, but through the preaching of the word and applying the word. I believe that it's through the preaching of God's word, and I have experienced this as well, that your hearts and minds will be filled and formed for his glory. Because through sitting through services, and listening to the Bible preached, you will hear hundreds, if not thousands, of accounts of God's faithfulness, His goodness. You will hear His promises week after week, and that will give you a sure and steady anchor for your soul. Subtly, at a subcognitive level, you are being shaped by the preaching of the Word and encouraged by it. Secondly, or thirdly rather, prayer is an ordinary means of grace that we commit ourselves to in this church. Corporate prayer. When you pray on, with me on Sundays, when I, when I beseech the Lord, we thank him together, we pray for the ministries that we're a part of, what you're doing is you're, you're joining your, your souls with me in prayer. You're, you're joining your soul, locking arms with me in prayer, and lifting that prayer up to the Lord. Um, and especially when we have our prayer meetings. Well, we're going to have a prayer meeting this month, too. Once a month is the goal to have prayer meetings. But so often, preaching is talked about a lot, but prayer is overlooked functionally. Leonard Ravenhill, in his book, Why Revival Tarries, Maybe I've read you this before, but the opening line of that book begins like this. The Cinderella of the church today is the prayer meeting. 
This handmaid of the Lord is unloved and unwooed because she is not dripping with the pearls of intellectualism, nor glamorous with the silks of philosophy. Neither is she enchanting with the tiara of psychology. She wears the homespuns of sincerity and humility, and so is not afraid to kneel. I, I am so convicted by lines like that. Because so often, I will run to my own devices instead of running to the Lord. And if a church is going to be worth its salt, it's going to run to the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, in vain the builders strive. So it's not by our ingenuity or effort. It's not even by my exposition of the scripture, but by God's power working through those things, which is made effective by prayer. So we commit ourselves to prayer in this church, knowing that the Lord does amazing things through prayer. There's that scene um, in a few places where Hezekiah gets the message from Sennacherib that he is going to destroy Jerusalem, that he is going to come in and he is going to break down the walls. He is going to kill your wives and do awful things to your children. And he sends this message to Hezekiah in a letter. And Hezekiah gets this letter and he goes to the temple and he lays it out, spreads it out before the Lord and falls on his knees and prays. And the Lord responded by eviscerating that army in the night and killing the king who came after them. The Lord does amazing and extraordinary things through prayer. I believe that. We believe that. And our church is committed to prayer. So when I pray, when I lead in prayer, join with me. When we have prayer meeting, come. And lift, let's lift our voices together for the Lord. For his glory and for the good of his church. The last thing I want to touch on, the last um, means of grace I want to touch on are the ordinances. Specifically the Lord's Supper. Because what we're doing at the Lord's Supper is we are looking back to Christ's death. We are proclaiming the Lord's death. And when we take the, the juice, it is a memorial of the fact that Christ's blood has gone in us and washed us clean. When we eat the bread, it's a reminder of his broken body for us. So we do look back through the Lord's Supper, but it's also a look forward in an interesting way. Because when we take the Lord's Supper, has anyone ever in the Lord's Supper been caught up into some state of euphoria where they just said, this is the kingdom of God? Has come. I have never been caught up in that state, frankly. And so in his book, I think James K.A. Smith in his book called Desiring the Kingdom is right on when he says, there's a certain sense in which the celebration of the Lord's Supper should be experienced, should be experienced as a kind of sanctified letdown. For every week that we celebrate the Lord's Supper is another week that the kingdom and its feast have not yet 
fully arrived. And every week, the words of the institution remind us, remind us of this fact. For we do it until he comes, like the scripture says. And so, yeah, we're eating the bread, we're taking the cup, but nothing is happening. What we're doing is we are pre-visioning the kingdom of God. Because when, you, when we are together in the kingdom of God, we will enter a great banquet hall, a feast, and we will glorify God together in a worshipful banquet. And that's what we're looking forward to in the Lord's Supper. So it's a longing, a longing together. Those are the four elements. Corporate worship, preaching, prayer, and the ordinances, baptism, especially the Lord's Supper, Supper once a month. The word in my mind then for this church is the word establish. And I looked that up in the dictionary, believe it or not. The word establish means to bring to a firm and stable basis. That is what we are doing in this church. We are bringing this ministry to a firm and stable basis. And so we worship, we preach, we pray, and we take the Lord's Supper because in God's kindness, God has ordained to work through these means of grace to shape and establish his people. That's why we do it. So I simply want to invite you to membership by telling you that we're committed to these things. So I want you to come Lord's Day. I want you to show up. Lift your voices to the Lord. I want you to hear his voice in preaching. I want you to lift your voice in prayer. And I want you to long for the kingdom in the Lord's Supper. I believe these are subtly creating a culture in, your, in our souls and are shaping our families and are shaping our church and fitting us for an eternal weight of glory. These are the very means that God has ordained to do that miraculous work. So in this church, we are committed to the ordinary means of grace because I believe that God does extraordinary things through the consistent, plowing-like administration of the ordinary means of grace. So, having sat through these messages, I want to invite you to membership for one last time. The what you will do, what you can do. If you're interested in membership, please come to me. I'd love to set up a meeting with you. What we do is we have a meeting together. We walk through our statement of faith and our church covenant together. The church covenant is your promise to the church and the church's promise to you. The statement of faith ensures that you understand Christian truth, you understand the gospel, and that you're committed to that, those things. After we have our meeting, I will send you home with the documents. I want you to pray over those things. Then if, if you are led Sign those documents, bring them to me, and our members are going to vote you in. And then you will be welcomed in on a Sunday morning. 
That's the process of membership. It is the members acting and receiving you in to the community. And it is you signing, ensuring that you believe the gospel, the faith once delivered to the saints, and you are covenanting with this church. That's my invitation to membership. If you're interested in that, I ask that you see me. Uh, For everyone else, I'm glad you're here. And Lord willing, God will continue to shape us to the preaching of his word. Right now, I'm going to...